Hello, Internet, and welcome to Proper Science, the show that debunks fake science one by one. Hello, and welcome back to Proper Science. This is episode 15, and this is a follow up to episode 14 last time. We had the first ever guest here in the Proper Science Podcast, Dr. Emil Villanueva. And he is actually also very interested in science communication. And he's actually uh, the director of research, publication, and new media for a non-profit organization called Universitas Foundation. And I believe I've mentioned that in the previous episode. It's actually been a long time since the previous episode was aired, so one extra thing that happened between that time frame is Dr. Emil recently got his Achievement Scholarship. This is a government-sponsored scholarship in the UK. The uh, United Kingdom government sponsors uh, a number of scholars from different countries to study in their chosen university anywhere in the UK, and Achievement grants them with all they need, basically. <laughs> Accommodation, uh, tuition, all of that, and even airfare, of course, from their home country and back. So our esteemed guest is right now in the University of Glasgow in Scotland, taking his Masters in Public Health with a focus on data science. Oh, and one more thing I need to mention about the Chevening Scholarship is that it's not a one-way ticket for people to study abroad and permanently settle in the UK and leave their home countries for good. The Chevening Award is given for a specific purpose, and these scholarships are given so that graduates of the Chevening program would go back to their home countries and apply what they've learned to help with the development of their home countries. So it's sort of like a sponsored uh, benevolent trade agreement of some sort that people from developing countries would come into the UK, study there, use their technology, get knowledge from the best universities and teachers, professors from the UK, and then bring that knowledge back to their home countries so that their home countries could benefit from their study. So it's a pretty good program. And it's a really nice way for the United Kingdom to share their resources with the rest of the world, especially through education. But enough about that. This is actually not sponsored by the Chevening Committee in any way. I'm just telling you about this nice opportunity if you are interested in it. Of course, you can apply. Just do a quick Google search about the Chevening Scholarship and you'll find application deadlines, requirements, eligibility and all of that stuff. So I think uh, for this year, or for next year's intake, applications have already closed. So if you are planning to get this prestigious scholarship, you may try again next year. Right then, back to topic. Um, fighting the infodemic. So once again, let's welcome Dr. Emil Villanueva. And let's hear him share his expertise on health communication and how to fight misinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccines. that is the spread of health misinformation. This is really rampant, even when the pandemic started before, especially now that lots of vaccines are being rolled out. A lot of people are becoming more and more hesitant. And 
I think some people even have a negative attitude towards vaccinations and even health protocols. I think this is one of the things that contributes to the length of the situation our country is in right now. And why do we have to continue these lockdowns, these quarantines? Because uh, a lot of people still have the wrong information. And of course, having the wrong information, they make the wrong decisions about the disease and about their own safety. So I'd really like to address a few concerns here about misinformation. Starting with this one, why do you think health misinformation is attractive to some people? The WHO even recognizes that along with the pandemic, we have another global issue called an infodemic. Right, I've heard of that. We have so much information coming out. Everyone is sort of excited to get to the root of this problem, trying to solve this problem of um, the COVID pandemic. And we have so much information within those, within that realm, lies several false information as well. Briefly, misinformation versus disinformation. Disinformation has the intent to cause harm and dissuade people from accurate information, usually with a particular agenda in mind. But for now, let's talk about misinformation in general. So basically false information, whether it's intended or not intended. So I think one thing, one reason why misinformation is so attractive is because a lot of misinformation carries simple ideas. For example, vaccines put in a microchip. It's so much easier to absorb that idea and share that idea versus a lengthier explanation of how mRNAs work. You've done a great job in the previous episode explaining how mRNAs work, but it's so much easier for people to say that vaccines put in a microchip in you and that's why they don't want to, they don't want to get vaccinated, get jabbed. Or for example, some people say that wearing a mask is killing me because it's subjectively harder to breathe despite the large body of evidence saying that wearing a mask doesn't really cause any harmful outcomes. And in fact, surgeons and nurses have been using masks for several hours, for several decades already. But because this idea is so simple, it's much easier to absorb um, for our brains to retain these ideas. It's much easier to spread these ideas as well. Another reason is that we're generally not comfortable with uncertainty. So unlike scientists and health professionals who deal a lot with uncertainty, we're more comfortable with probability and statistics, for example. The general public doesn't seem to be that comfortable with uncertainty. And it's difficult with emerging infectious diseases, just like SARS-CoV-2, because we don't know much about the disease. There's a lot of uncertainty with how the disease spreads, with how to treat the disease, with how to prevent infection. And I remember one of our infectious disease consultants telling us last year that the knowledge is evolving. And that's why protocols um, change a lot. Treatment protocols change a lot. Prevention protocols change a lot. And many actually want to hear certainty, some good news. For example, some would prefer to hear that a particular drug is sure to protect you from COVID. But as we know, with most other drugs, they don't always work 100%. I think that because many of us are not too comfortable with having uncertainty, we tend to cling to ideas, whether they're truthful or not, that seem to promise some sort of certainty. And lastly, I think 
confirmation bias plays a big role with spreading health misinformation. We hear what we want to hear. We confirm our preconceived beliefs. There's this video, this is old video from College Humor. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's called If Google Was a Guy. So there's this one scene yeah, I think in I've seen where um, the person searching Google puts aside the ton of research, the results from Google, a ton of research, and instead clings on to a few posts that support that preconceived belief. So we throw away the body of evidence for something that confirms our preconceived notions. For example, you know, some people who have anti-government or anti-establishment sentiment might choose to believe that COVID is a hoax, that the World Health Organization is conniving with Big Pharma. And if you've seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, or and probably also The Great Act, you you would see that social media algorithms can actually perpetuate these beliefs. You know, the algorithms suggest content that are aligned to things that we believe in. So if you're more inclined to believe in conspiracy theories, for example, or you're more suggestible to gossip on rumors, you might be shown content that are more likely to be misinformation rather than accurate and true information. And so big agencies such as the UN actually say that one way to end the pandemic is to address the infodemic as well. We need the right information to help end the pandemic. Right. And I think that's the bigger problem is people get exposed to all of this misinformation and most people actually don't know how to filter it out. So the bigger concern, especially for, I guess, health practitioners like you guys, is how to push the right information and how to make sure that information reaches the people who need it the most. I'd like to address another concern, especially of doctors like you. Based on your experience as an MD, working with patients who have had not just COVID-19, but any other disease in general. So people who consult with you. Is there any time that you felt a sense of distrust from some patients? Not exactly with COVID and the vaccines, but as I was training, both as a medical student and as a medical resident, sometimes you would encounter patients who have a perception of you as one lacking experience. And that might actually be true in some sense, that we have less experience compared to our consultants, our attendings, our supervisors, but we're still doctors on this. I'm not sure if you watch K-drama, if you've seen Hospital Playlist. So right now I'm following season two, and there's this one episode that, that actually really drove this point. It's something that resounds with a lot of us who have been in medical training, that some of our patients or even the relatives might have some sort of distrust because we look young, because we aren't as experienced. And so we, as trainees, we tend to want to show that we know what we're talking about. So we try to give information, address all their concerns, etc., without making sweeping statements or absolute statements, because... If things don't go according to what you say, patients tend to distrust you. They tend to discount what you're saying because what you previously said doesn't work. Another concern is that several of our patients also rely on information they've heard from others or what they've read online from Dr. Google. Sometimes the situation doesn't conform to their own expectations or the diagnosis or the treatment plan that you proposed don't go according to their expectations or what they want. So that, that, that kind of is a difficult situation as well. Um, but that's where the art of medicine comes in, actually, dealing with them and then trying to, to help them understand better. But I realized that most of the distrust is actually driven by fear. 
it's not always because they don't know. In fact, I think a lot of these patients and their, their relatives, their family members who have quote-unquote distrust issues, they actually learned about their disease. They probably researched it, but they're still driven by fear and they're, they're clinging to some sense of there's some good news or certain. So I think that that can actually cause the quote-unquote distrust issue between doctors and patients as well. Right. So it's a matter of fear, fear of the unknown. Again, going back to our mm-hmm. previous question, uh, right. people fear uncertainty. And if it's uncertainty about their own lives, about their own health, then it makes them more afraid. Mm-hmm. And that sort of spills over as distrust to doctors. So correct me if I'm wrong, if I understood this correctly. People don't intentionally mistrust doctors, but it's just a consequence of maybe some strong emotion they're feeling like fear. I, I would think so. Well, there, there are several factors, you know. One thing also is with regards to deeply ingrained cultural beliefs. So in the Philippines, a substantial part of the population still adheres to like traditional or folk medicine, for example. You know, recently, my doctor friend was telling me about how it was difficult for him to talk to patients, to explain to patients on um, their conditions because they were more familiar with the traditional system. The language, the vocabulary of Western allopathic medicine, as we were taught, is quite different from what our patients might know culturally. So that there's some sort of barrier there. And because it's foreign, there is also that fear of, of something new. Or they're not as familiar with it. That might introduce some sense of distrust because we're seen as strangers. Yeah, so there, there are a lot of factors, but many times they are rooted in what are known as emotionally critical misconceptions. And that's something we've been taught as medical students during our family medicine rotations, that before we quote-unquote educate patients about their conditions, we try to understand where they're coming from first. We try to understand the misconceptions they have and what emotions are attached to those. Wow, so that's a lot of preparation even before talking to the patient himself or herself. Must be hard. Again, that's the art of medicine. It's not something that works all the time. You have to deal with patients and families individually, know their unique circumstances, build rapport. It's basically it. It's building rapport, gaining their trust so that you can work together to effectively bring about good health. Which is the goal of healthcare, of course, right. is to is to do no harm and to provide the best treatments for people who have conditions. All right, let's move on to our next question. How do you think the medical community can build more trust with the general public? I think we should meet people where they are within our own spheres of influence. So right now you can see many doctors setting up their social media presence and providing health promotion or educational content. So I think that's that's really good news because a lot of the general public actually now rely on social media for health information to complement traditional media, for example. And another thing is, I think we've seen, especially during the pandemic, that to be effective, we have to gain people's trust and avoid being condescending. We shouldn't be experts in our ivory towers. Instead, we should acknowledge people's fears and try to address them. We should be truthful, just like how Dr. Fauci in the U.S. has been a good role model for health professionals and communicators as well. We should communicate what we know, but also communicate what we don't know. Communicate what's uncertain as well. And we trust that 
our patients and the public will be informed enough to make good decisions, we should practice that shared decision-making. We shouldn't be telling people what to do, but rather helping them realize that these are what's best for them. Like we want to make them act on their own accord rather than telling them, do this, do that, do this, do that. So it's like we're dictating or imposing to them. We want to avoid that. Right. Right, because at the end of the day, it's the patients themselves who are responsible for their own health. So doctors have what's called an authority of expertise. So we've studied medicine for several years to learn about these conditions, etc. But at the end of the day, it's still the patient who will implement, who will choose the course of action for their own health and well-being. You mentioned social media as a good channel for the medical community to communicate with their patients. Talk me through what you do at HealthXPH. I've seen a lot of the tweet chats that you've had before, and I've actually participated in some of them. So uh, what's the goal of HealthXPH, basically? Okay, so I'm not an active member of HealthXPH, if you could call it that, but I do sometimes participate with their tweet chats. So I was introduced to it actually because one of my consultants, Dr. Iris Isiktan. She's an endocrinologist. She's a health informatics graduate and she advocates health social media a lot. I learned about the HealthX tweet chat, which is a weekly event on Twitter where they discuss a couple of topics with regards to health, especially in the Philippine context. But you have you do have participants from all over the world as well. So there are a couple of topics every week. Sometimes it's on health communication. Sometimes it's on digital health. Sometimes it's on the use of social media. Sometimes it's on mental health and dealing with those issues in the pandemic, etc. So it's quite varied. They assign a moderator every week, if I'm not mistaken. It, ha- it runs from 9 to 10 p.m. every Saturday. Anyone actually is welcome to join. You just need to follow the hashtag HealthXPH and then tweet with the same hashtag as well. So that's Saturdays, 9 to 10 p.m. Is this a right. weekly thing? So far, it has been a weekly thing. They do announce sometimes, for example, on holidays or yeah, usually on holidays, they, they might not have it, but most of the time they do have tweet chat. And then usually before the Saturday tweet chat, there's a short blog post by the moderator to sort of like give a backgrounder on the topic. So you guys might want to check that out. Yep, that's another source of legitimate information, I believe. So how about you yourself, Doc? Do you have like a platform that you use to communicate to your patients? Personally, I don't have a page that's intended for health promotion. I know some doctors are. Many of the younger doctors do have those. Personally, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. More on Twitter, actually. And I do try to share relevant health information there as well. Retweeting relevant health information from trusted resources. And I think that's something that's also very important. We should also be choosing who to follow. Choose the trusted sources. Right. And that's actually one of the things I want to address here. Because social media has an abundance of different kinds of information from different kinds of sources. Some trustworthy, some untrustworthy. So how do we help people to realize or to know which sources to trust? I think I would start off with pointing our friends and family members towards pages of trustworthy organizations, reputable websites, for example. Those would include abroad the World Health Organization, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, and even the National Institutes of Health, NIH. So these are good websites to start with. A lot of the social media platforms have actually been putting out prompts. When you search about anything related to COVID, they prompt you to check out these websites or these platforms to get 
reliable news. Locally, we have the Department of Health in the Philippines, and we also have medical societies such as the PISMID, that's the Philippine Society for Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. They also have guidelines called the COVID-19 Living Recommendations, which I've been fortunate to, to work on as well as an evidence reviewer. You might want to check those out as legitimate sources. Avoid sharing those unverified information and clickbaits, definitely. It's kind of tricky as well to determine whether a source is trustworthy, especially individual accounts. But there are a couple of tips that you might want to try out to gauge the likelihood that this is legitimate. One thing is that some medical professionals actually have verified social media accounts. So that's a little check beside the name of Twitter handles, for example. But this is actually a very small proportion of health and medical professionals on social media. But you can do a quick Google search of these persons, of their names, to see their medical qualifications, what their specialty is. For example, internal medicine, infectious diseases, pulmonology, these are relevant to the pandemic, and what professional affiliations they may have. Those are pretty useful. However, identity theft is also a real challenge. You know, some people can use your photograph, use it as a profile picture, copy your bio, and claim to be you. And we've heard of this happen a lot. And some things you can do, number one, you can look at how many followers they have and whether they are followed by other health professionals. In general, fake accounts tend to have fewer followers and they tend to be more recent. They could have been created in just a couple of weeks to a few months. And then you, you might want to go through their feed and see if they're actually posting relevant content and they're not just the quote-unquote trolls. And I'd like to say also that a good doctor is humble enough to recognize what's beyond their expertise. So you also have health professionals, legitimate health professionals, talking about sharing information, but some may also have misinformation. So I think it's important to be humble enough to recognize that you have certain expertise within a particular field, but you might not be as an expert or as knowledgeable in other fields. And you'd have to practice prudence and be a bit more temperate with how you share information and how you talk about information. Like in particular, I'm speaking as an internal medicine specialist. I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm not a virologist or a microbiologist. So there are a couple of things or several things that are beyond my field of expertise that I would defer to the experts about, but I would be involved with things that I believe are relevant to me and to my patients as well. That's great. Now let's talk about the quality of information we find online. So of course, again, a sea of information and it's a mix of true and fake information. So what tips can you give people how to filter the fake from the truth? So like if they encounter a sort of piece of health advice from some random website, they don't know if this source is reliable or not. So judging by the information itself, how would they know if it's legitimate or if it's fake? So one thing is check out where the page is coming from. As you mentioned, if this is a random website, it looks shady, you've never heard of it before, it wouldn't hurt to fact check by doing a quick Google search. So that's personally what I do as well. If I see some headline being shared, I try to do a quick Google search as well. As a medical professional, I could also go to journals, for example. But in general, you might want to do a quick Google search and try to see if the same headline or the same you know topic comes out in more legitimate websites. And that includes WHO, CDC, big journalism outlets. In general, I think and I'd like to believe that the, the bigger media outlets, bigger journalism outlets adhere to a higher 
standard. They should responsibly be fact-checking the content they put out. So it would be more reliable to go to these trustworthy resources. And again, try to look at where the information is coming from. If you see an infographic, for example, try to look at the reference. Do they cite the Department of Health? Do they cite the CDC? Do they cite the WHO, for example? And I say this because there's so much information and we don't have time to go through all of it. And these reputable organizations, these reputable institutions, have experts who, who do the job for you. By going to these reputable organizations, it saves us time to separate what is true information from what is misinformation. Another thing, though, you mentioned sites like the WHO, CDC, and more mainstream media outlets. While I do agree that, yes, they do have much more stringent editorial standards so they can filter out information much more easily before putting it out there. The thing is, the people who are fond of sharing this information are those who have a distrust for these big organizations. Those people that say the WHO, the CDC is in league with Big Pharma, and this COVID-19 pandemic was all manufactured in a lab, and it's all for the benefit of big pharma companies to make vaccines and <laughs> earn money out of it. So how do we dispel that myth that these big organizations, these big authorities in healthcare, are not actually in league with big pharma and are just out there to make money? Yeah, that's true, Job, and that's a big challenge. I don't think there's an easy answer to that, to be honest. I would be more concerned about putting effort into informing or helping people understand true information. I mean, helping those people who are undecided or uncertain more than those who are the hardliners who subscribe to these extreme views. It might be more worth our time to talk to people individually or to communicate with people who are more open to, to information, who are more open-minded to true information, rather than those who are more sold or convinced that there is a conspiracy going on. But then again, it's difficult to convince them, but it would be worth you know, sharing or communicating that a lot of these organizations actually do their best to handle what's called or manage conflicts of interest. And that's one thing that we should try to look at as well. In general, trustworthy organizations disclose their conflicts of interest. For example, my personal experience with working in clinical practice guidelines is that we try to limit the involvement of people with direct conflicts of interest in the particular issue at stake, whether that's a COVID drug or vaccine, for example, we should disclose them. In general, you know, conflicts of interest are not automatically bad, but we should be transparent about them. Being transparent about them helps us and helps people realize how our decisions can be influenced as well. But again, I would say try to focus your energies as a communicator more on the people who sincerely want to get information or who are still uncertain more than those who are more bent on sowing disinformation. Right. And I think we have to make that distinction as well. Misinformation versus disinformation. Misinformation is probably someone just saw this online and shared it, thought it was real, but it turns out it's inaccurate information. But when we say disinformation, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's a deliberate attempt to distort the truth. That's right. Yes, that's right. Okay. And so, I think you probably from personal experience as well and experiences of others, we tend to have these communication or messaging apps. And then, you know, people share, share as, you, as you mentioned at the start of the show, share a lot of content, which are similar to like chain messages or chain letters. It's worthwhile to 
point people to more reputable information, especially if you think that they might have shared this inadvertently or they don't really intend to cause harm. But if you know that these people are known for sowing conspiracies, stirring conspiracies, for example, it might not be worth our time and might not be good for rapport as well to combat them head on. So we'd have to choose our battles here. Right, exactly. And I think personally, the proportion of people who are hesitant, but open to receiving the correct information and learning from the correct information is higher than those people who just want to keep spreading conspiracy theories, those hard extremists. Yeah, I agree. I think it's something about how much content they share, how prominent they are in the social media sphere. And because of that, because they share so much of these conspiracy theories, people think that there's more of them. Yeah. Interestingly, Joe, I was at this, I attended this one conference and then there was this paper they shared on analyzing the tweets of the pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine community. So they used a couple of keywords to classify accounts as whether they are pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. And what they found was that the anti-vaccine camp actually posted less content, they had less tweets, but they had more engagement, meaning more likes, more retweets, etc. So that does give you an idea of how important engagement is as well. And for science communicators and health communicators, we really need to put our focus as well on making engaging content, on um, making information more shareable. So just as how misinformation and disinformation can be can go quite viral, Unintended, we should also be making content that shares good information in a way that is palatable, that is shareable. So do you have any tips on making otherwise complex technical health information into something more digestible, more relatable, and of course, something that drives engagement? This isn't really my area of expertise, but from my personal observation of um, health professionals doing their part in their own personal capacity, for example. I've noticed that using infographics have been pretty useful, using images, using accessible language. We shouldn't fill our information materials with too much jargon. We should at best try to simplify, but not oversimplify information. And then I also noticed that a lot of the health professionals now like to use the local languages as well. So translating things into Filipino, which is our lingua franca, plus the local languages, the regional languages as well, might actually help. Those are some of my observations. And I do agree with translating into the local languages so that it could reach a wider swath of people. Because, of course, most people who need this information are locals. So they're more well-versed with their mother tongue than the usual languages we use to communicate in science. I mean, not everyone is proficient in English, so... If all of the content they see are in English, they might not understand all of them. All right. So any parting words for our listeners, Dr. Emil? It's been a great discussion here. But unfortunately, I think we are running out of time. So would you like to tell our listeners something before we end the episode? Sure. Maybe my call to action, Job, would be for our listeners to think before they click, whether that's clicking a shared link, for example, about a particular news or some lead that sounds interesting, or clicking that post button or that tweet button. Before we share content, we should try to think about whether these are true information 
whether we've done due diligence to see whether these are credible information. Because whatever we do, especially online, those have real ramifications, real implications. And we can help do our part to end the pandemic by sharing good information. And of course, get vaccinated as soon as we can. Definitely. Get vaccinated when you have the chance. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Emil, for joining us in today's episode of Proper Science. Really appreciate your inputs, and I'm sure our listeners would learn a lot uh, in this episode. So if any of our listeners want to follow you on social media, please drop your handles. Sure. I'm at Terry Emil on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. So you can send me a DM or tweet if ever you have other questions or you want to start up a conversation. Thank you again, Joe, for this opportunity. All right. You're welcome. So that is the end of our episode here. And on the next episode of Proper Science, of course, we will talk more about dispelling the myths about COVID-19 and this pandemic and vaccines and everything in between. Thank you, Dr. Emil. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Proper Science Podcast. Make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. And if you have a question in mind, just send them over using the Anchor app. Just search for the Proper Science Podcast and tap on message to record your question. I'll see you in the next episode. And remember to keep chasing the real science.